This morning's uh, scripture reading will be taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and that's page 964 in your Red Pew Bible. And it reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all affliction, so that we may be, com- be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Good morning. That was pathetic. Just gotta say. Man alive. I'm gonna go home right now. Good morning. Hallelujah. It's good to be in Katy, Texas. I appreciate so much the opportunity and the honor, and I counted a, a privilege to be standing before my brothers and sisters in Christ here in this place this morning. And I appreciate the the leadership of this uh, congregation, the great legacy of this church to faithfulness in the kingdom of God um, over many years. And to thank you for your presence and just the uh, beauty of the service this morning, the songs that uh, were led were just uh, spot on to what we're gonna be talking about this morning and I appreciated that. I bring greetings from Frieda Hardeman University and I know that there are many uh, ties and connections to this congregation uh, with that university and uh, I've been blessed to be working there um, as a professor for going on 14 years and it's a great place and I I love it when there's young people from Katy that uh, land there um, even if it's in the summer for Horizons and then others that come and have uh, done their education there but uh, any way that I can be a resource to you let me let me know on that account this morning we're going to be talking on the topic of overcoming the blues and this is an issue that so often it seems um, has been avoided in uh, the church because it's it's just been difficult for people of faith to maybe speak out and say look I I'm a Christian I love the Lord I am striving to to be faithful to his word and to uh, serving the Lord, but I struggle. I struggle with maybe some form of depression or anxiety or other mental health uh, issue or disorder. And I just want to tell you this morning that you're in really good company because there are a lot of godly men and women who through the ages have have struggled but yet have been faithful in their allegiance and their loyalty and their service to um, Almighty God. A blue storm is raging in our country and in the church and this blue storm 
of depression is no respecter of persons, irrespective of our age or education, gender, uh, spiritual maturity. It matters not. It is not a respecter of persons, and it affects countless uh, millions in our, our world and in our country. David was a man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 13 and verse 14. David was a man who struggled with his emotions at times and struggled even with depression. In Psalm 31, verse 9 through 10, and then verse 12, it says this. Psalm 31, 9 through 10, and then verse 12. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I've been forgotten like one who is dead, like a broken vessel. David is not in a good place in his life. Later on in the Psalms, we read something by, the, uh, by a son of, of Korah. And what's interesting about Psalm 42 is we're very familiar with the first verse or two. So I'm actually going to read the first verse. And we, we sang the song this morning that keys into that first verse. Not up there. Well, have to take your Bibles out. So verse 1 says this, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? We typically stop right there. That's great. It's talking about seeking the Lord, and as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after thee, O God. Beautiful sentiment. But then it gets ugly. Then we read on and we see that the psalmist is struggling. He says this in verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and multitude-keeping festival. And so we see this, this psalmist in verse four, 3 and 4 that he is longing for better days. He's longing with nostalgia to times in the past when things were better for him at a psycho-spiritual level. Verse 5 that we've got up there on the screen says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This man is a man of faith. This man is a man that loves the Lord, but this man is a man that is struggling. Verse 7 and 8 continues. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. The son of Korah is knocked down. He is knocked down, but he is not defeated. He is struggling, but he's not struggling 
without hope. He hasn't given in to despair. Labyrinths are pretty cool. A few months ago, I was at this labyrinth in Cincinnati, Ohio, down on the waterfront, and it was evening time, and it was just a beautiful evening. And as I stood at the labyrinth, we were doing some filming for a video, these kids were playing in the labyrinth. And uh, what's awesome about kids is kids don't always play by the rules, right? So the rules of a labyrinth are you're supposed to get to the center of the labyrinth and then try to figure out how to get out of the labyrinth. Well, for the, the children, all they did was climb over the hedges. They didn't care. You know, they were playing with the same rules that the adults were playing. And it was fun and games. I smiled and uh, I thought it was cute. But then it dawned on me that many believers are in an emotional labyrinth, maybe a spiritual labyrinth. They are stuck in their emotions. They're stuck maybe in their spirituality. They don't know how they got to the place where they are, but they don't also know how to get out of that place. And it's frightening there. It's like they're locked behind these iron bars, and on the other side of the iron bars is this past that that was the good old days, but they can't get back to those days and the feelings that went along with the good old days. And as they try to find their way out of this emotional labyrinth, there are twists and turns and they're dead ends and they're decoys. And it's frustrating and it's frightening, maybe even terrifying, because they wonder, can I ever escape this labyrinth in my mind? Can I ever get back to living freely once more? You may be stuck in a labyrinth today, maybe a psychological labyrinth as you've dealt with issues and you've suffered in in shame and in stigma and in, in silence. And you're wondering, is there hope? And if there is hope, how can I find that hope? Depression hurts deeply. It hurts deeply. If you've ever battled with depression or anxiety, you know that. But if not, maybe you've dealt with bouts of the blue. And so there's some statistics I would like to just quickly go over. I I covered these yesterday. 18 million adults in the United States deal with depression. 350 million people worldwide. Women are twice as likely as men to deal with depression. Do you know why? Because women have to live with men. (laughs) Can I get a witness, ladies? Women have to live with men. And there's maybe more truth to that than I want to let on. But... About 10% of all women, about 5% of all men deal with depression. It's a leading cause of disability for ages 15 to 44. Diagnoses are rising the fastest among millennials, those between the ages of around 18 through 34. And since uh, 2013, in fact, diagnoses have increased about 47%. What about youth? I speak to young people a lot. Young people deal with a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, and there's several reasons for that. But the diagnoses for depression specifically have risen about 63% over the last seven years. 63%. 47% for boys, 65% for girls. Again, twice as many girls as boys. One in five teenagers 
deals with some type of depressive disorder. About nothing hurts the heart of a parent or a grandparent more than to see their child or their grandchild suffer. Right? When we see our children or our grandchild suffer, whether it's emotionally, physically, relationally, even educationally, we will do anything we can do to try and remove that suffering, even if it means taking it upon our, ourselves, because we love them and we just hate to see them going through the travail and the, the, the difficulties that they are facing. Suicide is the third leading cause of death among adolescents. It's the second leading cause of death among college-age students. Everywhere I speak around the country, every church that I, I've, I've spoken at, I've spoken at plenty, afterwards somebody will come up and they will tell me the gut-wrenching story of their child or their grandchild that committed suicide. It's time as the church that we pull our head from out of the sand and stand up and say we want to be proactive rather than being reactive. And we want to be faithful in our care and compassion, compassion for our children, for our young people within our congregations and community. Someone dies of suicide about every 13 minutes, about 41,000 per year. All right. Many times suicide is, is demonized. Rather than dealing with the reality that it's a neurochemical imbalance, it deals with a, a deficit of serotonin. And there are different ways to treat that, but it must be treated because, as we know, as, as I know, depression can be deadly if it's left untreated, if it's left undealt with. We know the different spectrums of depression, all the way from mild episodic up to major depressive disorder or bipolar suicidality. That's a picture of my wife and some guy she met on a cruise, and I'm going to kill him if I can find him. That was our 30th anniversary. And um, my wife is uh, talented, beyond talented, a beautiful lady. I met her in, in college. I met her at a, a basketball game. Uh, Frida Hardeman was playing Lipscomb that night. We lost miserably, but I won tremendously, right? I saw her just really quickly to tell, her what tell you what type of lady she is. I spotted her at halftime. She was with one of my good friends who now also teaches at Freed. He's still a good friend, by the way. But she was dating him. It was Valentine's Day weekend. And uh, she had come in. She was still a senior in high school. And so I saw her down there. She had this long blonde hair. And was, remember the guest blue jeans? Maybe some of you remember guest blue jeans. Those were really cool in the day. Wearing this beautiful, you know, just beautiful girl. And I thought, man, I'm in trouble because I'm really attracted to this girl. And I know she's dating my friend. But I came down and I introduced myself to Missy. And I said, hi, you know, my name's Ryan. And uh, I know your, your friend. And as I was speaking to her, she looked at me like she did not understand what I was saying. And then she looked over at my friend and she started doing, and I can't, but she started doing sign language. And he interpreted back and he said, Ryan, Missy wants to tell you that um, she's really happy to meet you as well. And I thought, oh my goodness, I had no idea she was deaf. I had no idea she was deaf. And so 
this goes on, it's really awkward for me, I don't know sign language, so I am speaking like very loudly and making sure she can read my lips. And this goes on for a few minutes during the halftime break, and after the halftime break, I sit down, and we've got several friends around us, he sits between us, she sits on the other side, and after about 10 minutes, and I don't, I don't know how to react or talk with her or communicate with her, um, my friend says, Ryan, Missy would like to say something to you. And so I'm thinking, you know, she's going to talk a little bit different because she's hearing impaired, so I was ready for that. So I put my head forward, and she put her head forward, and she said, Hi, Ryan, how you doing? <laughs> and I sat back, and everyone sitting around us was in on the joke, and they just erupted in laughter. But I got the last laugh because I married the girl. <laughs> so that's Missy. We get married while we're in college. Um, she's an education major. It's not long before she starts having some kidney issues. We find out she's got a kidney disease. This was at age 20. Doctors tell us that we need to go ahead and start our family right now because it would be a great risk to have children. We were, we were still kids ourselves. I was 20 and she was 19 when we got married. So we, we're saying, man, we're not ready for that yet. So after a long um, a long period, we ended up deciding to go the adoption route. But Missy's kidneys keep on going downhill. In fact, while I was preaching in North Texas, it got to where I was having to give Missy shots about twice a month. The shots cost, for her being anemic, the shots cost about $1,500 out of pocket because our insurance wouldn't cover it, cover it. So I'm giving her shots. In that same time frame, our son Austin, who's here t today, and he's sitting back there, he's 19, now he's four years old. It's vacation Bible school time. It's June in North Texas. And he had just come back with my wife and um, daughter from being in Kansas to visit her family. And they come back, and Austin had all these little fingerprint bruises, bruises over his body. And we couldn't figure out what was wrong. Why did he have these fingerprint bruises over his body? So I thought he had an iron deficiency or something like that. So we decide to get it checked out, so Missy takes him to the doctor in the morning. The doctor says, look, bring him back after VBS, take him onto VBS, bring him back, we'll check it out and uh, do some blood work. So he comes to VBS, he's still, you know, he's still pretty high energy, but not his normal self, Austin is. After VBS, we take him and get him checked out, and, and they do blood work. No fun doing blood work on a four-year-old, right? So they do blood work. I go back to my church office, Missy goes to the house. The parsonage was out in the country a little bit, outside the city limit. And about an hour later, my phone rings in my office, and it's Missy on the phone, and I can't make out what she's saying. She's just babbling and crying on the phone, but I've made up two words. The one word was Austin, and the second word was leukemia. So the world goes in slow motion as I try to rush out the door, jump in my truck and peel out of that gravel parking lot and crossing over the, the railroad tracks, I'm hyperventilating and I get to the house and rush into the, through the garage and into the living room and Missy is there on the recliner in the fetal position just wet with, with just being sobbing her eyes out and she, she kind of collects herself. She said, Dr. Parkey called and he said something about his white blood count, and I don't know what's going on, but he thinks he's got leukemia. 
The phone rings, it's Dr. Parkey. Dr. Parkey says, Ryan, pack your bags right now. Get that boy to cook children's immediately. His white blood count's 189,000. If you don't know anything about white blood count, it's supposed to be between five and 12,000. By the time we get Austin packed, Austin still doesn't know what he's go, what's going on. We just say we're taking him to the doctor. When we get to, to Cook Children's, they're waiting on us. The oncologists are there, the hematologists are there. They do more blood work. They say his blood count now is 217,000. They say we've got to start chemotherapy immediately, right now, because his organs are gonna start shutting down. As a parent, that changes you. When you see your child suffering and you cannot really do anything about it, except to acquiesce to the doctor's wishes. We go through that first year, it's brutal. We spent about three months of that first year, at least, at the Ronald McDonald House. I stopped preaching for a little bit. The church was fantastic, though. They were so helpful to us. That same year, Missy's mother dies unexpectedly. That same year, I get hired to move to Freed Hardeman. That's a blessing, but we're about to leave our support network in Texas to go to Tennessee, which is tough. Missy's kidneys are getting worse. We get to Tennessee. We've got two more years of chemotherapy. It's a three-year protocol for chemotherapy for Austin through St. Jude. Every week, every Wednesday, it's chemo time. Every Wednesday driving down from Jackson. And it's just doing a number on us psychologically. We're, we're holding on to our faith, but it's affecting our emotions, affecting my wife's emotions. Then our kidneys really start failing. After the first year, her kidney function is down to 17%, and she's got to get a kidney transplant. I'm going to cut the story short here, but a friend of mine, Stephen Yakeley, um, he preaches actually at, or is a minister at College Church of Christ in Searcy now, Perfect match, donates kidney. Missy's in the hospital room at Vanderbilt in Nashville. Austin is at St. Jude on the same day. Missy's getting a kidney transplant. Austin is getting chemotherapy. On the door of the hospital room, Missy had made this poster before the transplant, and the poster simply said this, I am weak, but he is strong. And she wasn't talking about this dude, because I was a basket case. He's talking about the Lord. I could hear the nurses out of the nursing station speaking about just how powerful that was and how her faith was so strong. Because we didn't know if she was going to live or die. Within that first year, Missy develops cancer too, endometrial cancer. Has to get treatment for that. One day we're up seeing her... Um, nephrologist, kidney doctor, Dr. Heidi Schaefer at Vanderbilt, and Missy says to Dr. Schaefer, she says, I don't know what's wrong with me. She said, my, my husband loves me, I've got kids that adore me, I've got this, I've got a good job. She was a school counselor, got this good job. But the days I just cannot get out of bed, the days that I just feel so low, so, so dark, and Missy had confided in me that she had stopped clicking her seatbelt in the car. She had stopped click putting on her seatbelt. Though she wasn't actively suicidal, she was hoping God would take her, that she would end up in a wreck and be gone. She would kick the kids in to their seats. She was in a bad way. Dr. Heidi says, Missy, you've got major depressive disorder. We've, we've got to treat this 
medically. We've got to be proactive with this. So this morning, brothers and sisters, I'm not talking to you from just a theoretical standpoint. This is very, very personal to me, to my story, to my family. We've, we've lived with this, and we're still living with it right now. And, and through the midst of, of this and through all these challenges, we've seen that God is faithful. By the way, I used to believe that God never gives us more than we can handle. Ever heard that? God will never give you more than you can handle. Show me the book, chapter, and verse that says that. It does not say it in the Bible. What it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to bear, but with every temptation will provide a way of escape. He says nothing about trials, though. And there are times that you find yourself, and I found myself flat on the face, lying prostrate before the Lord, saying, God, I can't handle this. And that's when you've got to trust God to handle it for us. We've got to trust in the Lord to handle it for us. You may be struggling in such a way that you're at the end of your rope and you don't, you say, Lord, I can't handle this. God can handle it. Let him handle it. Lean on him. Don't lean on your own understanding. Lean on the brethren. And so Missy and I have come up with the shades of blue. I've got these little wristbands. We actually got them in the back. And this was my wife's idea because it's a great idea. I was not so smart to come up with this. But we've got a, a yellow one. We call it a sunshine yellow day. And I'll talk through these. And a, a, a sky blue day. And then a violet blue day. And then a dark indigo day. All right. And so I'll, let's walk through these quickly. Because she will wear these colors depending on the type of day she's having. So that I as a husband and, and as a family we know how to respond to her in a, an appropriate way. And so the sunshine yellow day is a great day. She feels like, and maybe you feel like you can keep up with your responsibilities. You still have room to smile. You can take on a creative task. Life is good. You can see God more clearly. You're functional, highly functional that day. Psalm 118.25, by the way, is on that yellow wristband. It says this, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's a great day. Then there's a sky blue day. It's a manageable day. Though Missy might sense the, uh, the presence of depression lurking in the shadows close by, she still sees the sun peeking through the clouds. She's still able to accomplish the tasks of the day. It's a little bit more difficult, but it's still a, a good day. And I think about Nehemiah 8 and verse 10. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. But then you move on to a violet blue day. On a violet blue day for Missy, everything's getting darker. She has trouble getting done what she needs to do for herself and others. She's sad sometimes and she doesn't know, know why she's sad. Her body aches, literally. Isaiah 41.10 says this, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then there's dark indigo. Dark indigo day is an impossible day. It's the darkest shade of blue before everything goes to black. Life is extremely difficult and painful for Missy, or maybe for you on a day like that. Everything hurts, your body, your mind, your relationships, your spirituality. Simple tasks like getting out of bed and taking a shower and getting dressed seem like insurmountable tasks 
to you, impossible tasks to do. But Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He is there. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. He understands you. He is not going to abandon you. Hebrews 13, 5 says, Never will I leave you. Never will I desert you. Thankfully, these days cycle. There will be sunshine yellow days again, or at least sky blue days. Hold on. Do not give up in the midst of despair. Though you might feel guilty and feel like you are less than, and if only I had more faith, I wouldn't struggle the way I do, and you're highly self-critical, stop doing that. That doesn't help. Remember that some of these things are out of your control. You may feel like you're drowning in a sea of despair, but it's important, as I had said yesterday, that depression is not a symptom of faithlessness. It's a medical condition, and we need to treat it as such, especially at the higher levels. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul, who had prayed to God several times to remove his thorn in the flesh, God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul would say, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. There are three distinct things that I want to get you to focus on, the three R's treatment R's on how to deal with this. Number one, first R, again, recognize God's abiding presence. Even though God might feel like he's a million miles away, doesn't make it so. God is with you. Recognize God's abiding presence. Re get, get saturated with scriptures. Write down scriptures that you can read to remind yourself of that promise. The second R is to reach out to others. And we spoke in Bible class today about reaching out in service, how that refines us, how it redefines us, how it reconnects us, how it redeems our story and takes something that's bad and makes it beautiful. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good. Now, all those things are not good in and of themselves, but they work together so that we can serve. Missy's got a built-in radar. When she sees people suffering, she can spot it a million miles away because she is sensitized to that. Through her depression, it's, it's given her this hypersensitivity to the suffering of those around her. If you struggle with a mental health issue, you probably have that too. Use that to serve. Use that to benefit those around you to the glory of God. The third are respect your limitations because you might be limited in energy and strength. So know when to say no. But reach out to serve others. A moment ago we looked in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to, able to to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. One of the best things you can do for those that are struggling is to give them a shoulder to cry on. Be present to them. Love on them. You might not have the words to say, but have an attitude that shows the love of Christ. As you shift your perspective and you take it off self and See those around, as Jesus said, 
the fields are white unto harvest. Jesus elsewhere in the gospel said they are like sheep without a shepherd. And he was moved in his guts. His splagnizomai, the word for guts. He was moved with compassion for those that were suffering. Love your neighbor like yourself, which implies a self-love and a willingness to step beyond yourself. David says in Matthew, I mean, sorry, in Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. That's a beautiful scripture infused with hope as we are willing to serve selflessly as Jesus did. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I'm going to ask you to stand up with me for a moment as we wrap this up. Would you stand up with me? Now, you know that I teach at Frieda Hardeman, so you know it's conservative, right? I'm not going to go charismatic on you right now, so relax. But this, this V is, a, is a, the victory V, right? By the way, it's been discovered that this posture, when people are standing in this posture, it's very hard to feel depressed because it's an open posture. We're opening up ourselves to God, and it's a worshipful posture. I'm going to have you with me Put your hands up like this for a moment in the V, all right? Jesus called us to live victoriously. He said we're more than conquerors. Don't put your hands down. No, don't. Put them back up. We're to walk in victory. We are more than conquerors, all right? Now, the elders of the church, I'm going to put it in uh, Tom and Bill, who I ate out uh, last night with. On Wednesday night, you can tell them to put their hands down. But until Wednesday night, you've got to stay with your hands up in this V. You can put your hands down. Stay standing, though. We're called to live this, this victorious life, but a victorious life isn't a trouble-free life. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus said, I have come to give life and give it more abundantly. So never let go of God's hand. He will never let go of you. He will never let go of you. I love holding hands with my children. My son, who's here during the Lord's Supper, sometimes we just grab each other's hand. It's great. It reminds me that my Father in heaven has got a hold of my hand. There are times that I might feel like I, I can't hold on, but he's got me, and he's got you this morning. If you are subject to Christ's invitation and you are needing to come and give over your troubles to him, give over your sins to him, be washed in the waters of baptism, or come confessing a need or a sin that you need help with, won't you come as together we sing the song.